Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. We're going to have our reading now. Uh, we have two readings this morning. The first one's from Exodus 1, 15 to 22. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Tua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And our second reading is 1 Peter 2, 9 to 25. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor, as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Thank you very much for that reading, Sarah. Reverend Colleen, welcome. Oh, sorry, you're on mute. Good morning, everybody. Um, Colleen, maybe uh, for those of us who are new and uh, don't know your connection to Ridley, maybe could you just, um, yeah, introduce yourself and, um, yeah, share how you're connected to Ridley and where sure. you're serving? Um, well, I was, uh, of course. Um, so I was a Ridley student in the late 90s and then I was a tutor and adjunct lecturer from 98 through to somewhere in the 2000s. Um, I'm currently the vicar here at Oakley Anglican Church and we're telecasting from here this morning as we would on a Sunday morning. I've been here four and a half years um, and it's my great privilege to speak to you this morning on the uh, Memorial Day for Ridley's martyrdom. Um, I, I feel like I've had a long connection with Ridley having been a tutor on and off for more than 11 years and uh, my heart might sit with academia though I'm here in the pastoral ministry at the moment. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I would love to pray for you before you start, if that's all right. Thank you, friend. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Colleen and for her service. Lord, we just ask that you would bless her as she speaks, that you would um, speak through her and uh, encourage us um, by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, let's continue in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts and minds give glory to you, Lord God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, friends, it's no surprise to any of you, but Melbourne is in the longest lockdown of anywhere in the world for this current pandemic. We've struggled, all of us, to be obedient. We've all wished there was some way we could just twist one of those rules so we could see the, our close friends, our families. And now we've got another challenge before us as a church. Even as we come out of lockdown, the church is being asked to do difficult things. We want people to be safe, but now the government's asking clergy to check the vaccine status of the church attendees, not just have them scan in. And subsequently, to enforce attendance only to the eligible at larger indoor services as we head into the Christmas season. It's going to be a challenge. How should we respond? Is this just a temporary measure? Or is this something that will restrict our gospel ministry going out? Will there be fringe families who God is calling who choose not to come because they're not vaccinated? Will there be people who see this as a rule the church has put on instead of the government? Historically, the people of God have responded to the government in lots of different ways, and this is usually driven by the position and role of the church in their society. Sometimes, as in England, the church is an arm of the government, and sometimes this is a good thing. I'm not suggesting it's, it's necessarily wrong. 
but occasionally the church is an arm of the government for evil, as we saw under the Third Reich. And more often now in the Western democracies, the church sits in an odd spot. There's a separation, or so we think, between church and state. But in all of these different ways in which the church exists within society, are we still called to be obedient? Well, First Peter helps show us a way forward. In briefly looking at the context for Peter's letters, we need to remember a few key aspects of the Greco-Roman world, which are so alien to us and our experience here in the West. Firstly, if you have a look at this next map, the Pax Romana shows just how large the Roman Empire really was, an empire based on expansion and military might through conquest and what they call peace, which is really the collusion, collaboration and oppression of the people in so many parts of that world. Remember, Rome was always looking for more land, for more people, for more taxes. This is their whole model. Secondly, the Pax Romana also brought in its own active syncretism, a model of state-endorsed pantheistic religion. Imperial cult, by the time Peter is writing this letter, is firmly ensconced, not only in Rome, but further afield, as emperors are declared divine, usually upon their death, and then worshipped in temples and in towns. And finally, the third key thing to think about at this time is the structure of society with designated status and class a society that's more fluid than we might realise, as although the patricians sit at the top with land, they could be poor, and the plebes towards the middle could actually be wealthier and move. However, for patricians, for knights, the equite, for plebes, and for freedmen, there was protection of law not given to slaves. Ultimately, there were some protections around slaves that they were not just to be killed for no reason, but even after those laws are brought in, we see that that's not always upheld. It's estimated that depending on where you were across the Roman world, slaves made up between 25 and 40% of the population. So now if we look closely at our reading from 1 Peter, we first need to consider the structure of the letter. There are lots of models given for this, but we're going to look specifically at one that I think helps us this morning. We see first from 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1, that he is writing to God's elect, to the exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And this first section of the letter encourages these believers, and of course subsequent believers like us, to focus on the work of Christ, God's great mercy to do this. One way to summarise this theological impetus provided is seen in this first section in 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So while this structure I'm presenting is not the only way to think about the book of 1 Peter, it just helps us this morning to see that at the very beginning, from 1 Peter 1, 3 following, God gives mercy, and it's unpacked there. And then we get to what is seen as a sort of hinge point at 1 Peter 2, 9, where Christians have received God's mercy, and then following from our reading this morning, how they respond to that mercy and express it. 
Peter hones our focus and understanding of God's work, reminding us that it is God who shares that mercy, God who continues on. Can I have a look at the next slide or maybe even the next one? I'm looking for the one that says, let's look closely, hinge. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. Did you notice Peter addresses the elect as the beloved and urges them here to work out what this looks like? If we continue on with our focus text this morning, further in 1 Peter 2, he then wants them to be set apart from the world, addressing them as foreigners and exiles in this world. He wants them to flee from the sins that are there that wage war against them. Of course, the ability to abstain from sin, to flee from sin, is based on God's work. Interestingly, Peter provides some reasons to live good lives, not only to be obedient to God, but in verse 12, that they accuse you of doing wrong. They see your good deeds and glorify God on his return. Peter continues, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor is the supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do wrong. It's really clear here that the hymn is not the emperor sending out governors, but God who installs the emperors and the governors, that God's will might be worked out. God has established the earthly reasons, the earthly rulers. And Peter once more gives the second reason for this, for this obedience, for this submission. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. It's important to note here to just take a minute to step out of first step. In the New Testament, Thessalonica, Christians were accused of being world revolutionaries. This is the accusation made in Acts 17 about Paul, that he has brought in revolution, that he has suggested that there is a king, the Lord Jesus, who we should worship instead of the emperor. Peter continues now to highlight the freedom of the elect, not as an excuse or mask for evil, but as free people to serve the living God as his slaves. For though free from death, we are bought at a great price. I want to comment just briefly on the Greek here, something that's not seen in an English translation I could find. But you'll see in verse 17, which is translated us, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. In fact, what's not obvious in the English is that these are imperative words. These are commands. Honour everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Revere God. Honour the emperor. We're being told what to do. It's not a suggestion. It's not mealy-mouthed. It's the command voice of a captain or ruler. So we can see here some of the key points as the chosen and beloved people of God, we're told to abstain from sin, to move and flee from the desires that attack us. We do this for a number of reasons, not only to be obedient to God. We do all things so that God could be glorified in what we do. 
Peter now moves to perhaps the most difficult part of this passage in looking at slaves. And this application is pointed because we don't have slaves and that's a good thing. Slaves are encouraged to endure the unjust suffering inflicted by harsh owners. Peter expands on this by pointing to the example of Jesus who suffered unjustly. But by his suffering, Christ did not sin, deceive, retaliate, threaten or revolt. Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and then bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Paul moves directly from this model of Christ as the Christian response that we should follow for unjust suffering to the work Christ accomplishes on the cross in bearing human sin so that believers might be called into God's great family through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, I wonder how we think this has all been applied. I wonder how we think the church has responded to this. I want to use a practical example of Bishop Nicholas Ridley. Now, I don't know how much you know about Ridley, but I've, 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 my background's in church history and systematic theology, and I'm particularly interested in the, the time of the Reformation. And with Ridley, just as the other bishops, Latimer and Cramner, these are people who refused to recant. They knew that death awaited them, but they chose to stay the course. And what did Ridley think about governmental authority? Well, let me read you a little bit of the text I've stuck up there. Ridley had no issue with understanding that the hearts of princes were in God's hand. Whatsoever God wills, he could make them bow. But I will comment further from his writings and other acts. He saw a division between the work of the Roman Catholic Church of the day as that of the Antichrist and a division between that and the temporal rulers in front of them. Ridley at no point advocated rebellion against secular rulers. Clearly they were understood as deceived or bewitched, but he followed their process and procedures even though he knew death was the most likely outcome. He says here, uh, if the matter, that is the decisions before them about heresy, were a matter of policy wherein the prince must be obeyed, how has that now changed to be a matter that stands before the unity of the Catholic Church and the necessity of our salvation? He said back to them that there's this question about should there be a divide between temporal authority and the authority and rule of the church? Ridley understood that martyrdom was in God's hands. Ridley understood that while he might be obedient to the temporal rulers, by doing so, he still would have to stand on that last day. He wrote the most poignant farewell, and if you have a chance in SWATVAC and want some encouragement, let me suggest that you go to anglicanhistory.org and look for the writings of Cramner. They're all there. Let me read you these last words. And to have a heart willing to abide and stand in God's cause and in Christ's quarrel even unto death. I ensure thee, O man, it is an inestimable and an honourable gift of God, given only to the true elect and dearly beloved children of God and inheritors of the kingdom of heaven.
So then Ridley, whilst obedient in physical behaviour to the temporal lords, to the new Queen Mary Tudor, refused to obey in spiritual matters, refused to stand for any other than the gospel of Christ, refusing to recant to the very last and choosing instead to die, to follow the example of the Lord Jesus. But friends, are there other ways forward? You may have wondered why I asked for the first reading this morning from Exodus 1. Now, we're not going to fully exegete this together this morning, but it's clear for a few things come out. Pharaoh has ordered the midwives, whose names are given, Shipra and Pua, to kill the Hebrew baby boys. They deceive Pharaoh, and God blesses them and gives them families of their own. And this passage in Exodus was one that those who found difficulty with church and state being tied together went to again and again. King James I wanted those verses removed from his translation, not that he translated it, because they gave the idea that perhaps the king could be disobeyed. So how then do we move forward? How can we apply these writings to us today? Are we called to obey all government directives? Well, clearly God establishes and puts in rulers, both good and bad, as instruments of his own action to meet out consequences and commendation. Yet the heart of this directive to obey the rulers is to give glory to God, to surprise those outside of the church so that no one can accuse Christians of being troublemakers or revolutionaries. But as you'll know, some Christians have been revolutionaries. Some Christians have defied the law. In fact, even the apostles at the end defied the law and refused to acknowledge the emperor as divine. Ridme, Latimer, Bonhoeffer, and more than we can name or count, have chosen instead to serve God and stand for him. Now, I'm grateful, friends, that Australia is not a totalitarian state. I'm grateful we don't live in that regime. I'm grateful that I don't face those decisions every day. But perhaps in my gratitude, I should have some disquiet. Perhaps in my thankfulness, I should wonder if I really recognise that as Christians, we are called to suffer. The life of godliness is not an easy track. The example of Christ is one we are called to follow, to suffer to do the right thing even at great cost. Friends, let's pray. Lord God, as we go into your week and your world, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we see challenges before us, as we face questions the governments raise, so that we might proclaim your name, so that all might turn to you and live. In Christ's name, amen.